tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Big day today, Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, and well, we got a lot to talk about. Boy, do we have a lot to talk about. Well, I suppose I should stop talking. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray unto thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. St. Paul, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. And we're going to start. Uh, 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 let's see here. I got to look up a word real quick because it, we just start off with it. This is, uh, I got it. I've got the word already. It's anatrefo. Okay, see, anatrefo. Okay. St. Paul says this. Paul addressed the people in these words. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. And it says, brought up in this city. That word brought up, and this isn't the word of the day. But it's a word uh, brought up in this city. The word is the verb anatrefo, which can mean having been educated. It can also, uh, having been nursed, having been uh, um, educated. You know, there's so many references that St. Paul makes uh, um, in Greek. Let me pull that up. That I have a feeling he spent a long time in in uh, um, uh, um, in Tarsus, he was Greek would have been just as much his first uh, his first language as Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, there's so many references. Uh, the the for instance um, in First Corinthians fifteen thirty three, uh, he quotes from Tyus, a work from My- Menander. A third-century writer, uh, and then he he quotes something very funny from uh, the Epimenides. It's very ancient. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. That's from Epimenides, and then uh, he's quoting Seneca uh, in in Acts seventeen. Uh, um, 
Well, he's referring to, to, uh, yeah, he quotes Seneca, who was uh, the tutor of Nero. And, and then in Acts, he talks about, uh, um, uh, he quotes Seneca again, Acts 17, 24. Uh, he, just, he knew Greek philosophy wonderfully. He quotes uh, Aratus, a, a poet. Saying we are all his offspring, meaning the the children of God. Uh, then um, he quotes Aristotle in Galatians, and he quotes Plato in First Corinthians nine. So it goes on and on and on. Uh, um, Paul was thoroughly Greek in much of his philosophical and intellectual life. This is a point I want to make big time here. Are we ready? You're ready for me to make my big point? I'll make it early in the schmear. Our civilization, which is in great peril right now, is called traditionally called the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian civilization. It is the invention of Paul of Tarsus. He is the first person in history who can rightly be called Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. He was born in a Greek-speaking city, and I believe spent a sufficient time and part of his education uh, in this Greek-speaking city of Tarsus. Remember, Turkey, what is now Turkey, was thoroughly Greek uh, uh, in culture and in language at the time of Christ, and much of the Holy Land was thoroughly Greek. We forget this, that, that the Greeks had conquered the Persian Empire and had populated and culturally dominated much of the much of Asia, uh, what we would call Asia. So back to the thing here. So Paul was thoroughly Greek, and quoted Greek philosophers, poets, and comedians. He knew Greek culture. He was well educated in it. That would probably not have happened in Jerusalem. So I believe he had to have spent sufficient time in Tarsus to have become. Hellenized or Greekified. That's what Hellenized means. So he was Greek. He was also a Roman citizen. It is thought that his parents were captured and enslaved by um, Pompey the Great when he took over the Holy Land um, in the century before Christ. They were freed, and he... Uh, um, or the parents of, of, when you freed someone, they were part of your, your clan, your family. So you received Roman citizenship. So he received Roman citizenship by being born of Roman citizens. He was, he was, I suspect, pretty much upper class. He was not just a, some poor fellow. Um, so he's Greek and Roman, Roman citizen, Greek culture, and then he was, he says here, I am a Jew. And in saying that, what he's saying is, I am, I am a Judean. I am a, a, a Judean man, uh, born in Tarsus, educated in, in this city. Um, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he says. Uh, so he was from the tribe of Benjamin. But he was politically and theologically a Judean. Now, 
we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially in the War Scroll, you see a, a reference to Judea that, that is disparaging. Uh, well, it's written by some we would call a Jew. But Paul was thoroughly part of the establishment of Judea. So he is a Judean man. Uh, um, and I, I think that was a primarily a political designation uh, because we forget the politics and religion in, in most of the world, history of the world were not separate things at all. So he says, I'm a Judean man. And of course, he was a Christian, being a follower of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. So he is the first person in history who can probably be called, can properly be called Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian. Uh, um, this is huge. We owe our civilization to Paul. Now, the big question is, why did he go west? Christianity went east. Thomas uh, brought Christianity as far as India, and, and Christianity even spread to China in its Nestorian form. Christians scattered throughout the the um, throughout Asia, Central Asia, and even China uh, in the first millennium, but it didn't lay hold of the East as it did the West, the Mediterranean, and that's because of Saint Paul. Um, he, he's one of the most amazing men in history. He was tireless. Now he was. I may I maintain, or I think, maybe that's a better way to put it, that he was an upper class Greco-Roman <laughs> uh, from a Judean background, <clears throat> and then at some point, his family being well-to-do, they sent him back to to be educated <clears throat> in uh, uh, in the old country, in in the Holy Land, because he was becoming too Greek. Now, very interestingly, where's where's my other little computer here? I did lots of uh, digging up things on, on computers today, but here we go. Let me find it here. It's very interesting. There is a theory, which I don't know that I fully embrace it, um, that that St. Paul um, uh, actually, he, he says he was a student of Gamaliel, but there's a little controversy in that. Uh, all sorts of people want to deny he was a student of Gamaliel. But there is a um, a particular student of Gamaliel who uh, was was called well, he he was called uh, impudent in learning. And I don't know where people who have this theory get it, but. No, there is some there's some point to the theory that that this this stu, impudent student in learning was Paul, and that he was in a sense uh, fired by by Gamaliel um, uh, because he was too radical. He was he was impudent. He was too uh, too inflexible. It may be, but there's no there's no real reason there's there's not a strong reason but it would it would it would explain the great difference between Paul and Gamaliel Gamaliel was flexible Gamaliel defended the Christians in fact is the Eastern Church believes he was a Christian and has canonized him uh, much to the chagrin of 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 people who are not Christian I'm not gonna go there I we in the Western Church we we don't we don't do that but who knows 
he was certainly a very tolerant and a very wise man, and he protected the Christians from those who wanted to be violent against them. Now, St. Paul was very violent against Christianity. So, you know, his parting company with Gamaliel, who had been his teacher, uh, might might be explained by that. I don't know if I agree with it, uh, but it's just interesting, so I mention it. Well, let's get to the text here again. Okay. Paul hated Christians, but we see, oh, gosh, this is going to be complicated. He drew near to Damascus. At noon, a great light from the sky suddenly shone around him. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he says, my companions saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. I asked, what shall I do, sir? Get up and and go into Damascus. And there you'll be told everything. All right. Well, then he goes to Ananias, who baptized him. Then we go to, this is Acts, uh, the 22nd chapter. But if we go to the this same story in Acts 9, it seems different. Uh, there's a flash of light. Uh, Saul falls to the ground. And he says, um, who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice but could see no one. So in Acts 9, they hear the voice. In Acts 22, they do not hear the voice. This is in the same book about the same man, probably written down by the same person. What's going on? It seems completely contradictory. Again, I remind you that for me, the contradictions, the apparent contradictions in Scripture are, are um, indications of the truth of Scripture because we at no time in 2,000 years have ever tried to smooth out the wrinkles and, well, let's make the stories agree. There's a number of possibilities. One possibility is that it is a misprint from some point in history. That's a possibility. I don't think that's it, though. Another is that the, the words have different meanings. Uh, the word here is akuo, and funny is a sound, a voice. In one place, he may say that they he heard a voice of one who said to me. That's exactly what the text says. Uh I hear the voice of one speaking, whereas in the next text, they heard the sound. Phony can also mean a sound. So it might have been met in two different contexts, depending on the people to whom St. Paul was uh, telling the story at the time. Who knows? But to me, these little contradictions emphasize the truth of Scripture. So I guess that's, that's what I really want to share. Well, let's, let's go to the gospel. Um, this is the ending of Mark. Jesus appeared to the 11 and said to them, all right, I, I don't want to go into uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe, and remember the word means trust. Whoever trusts and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not trust will be condemned. This is different. Uh, when I hear whoever's believed and is baptized means I'll, okay, I'll sign the creed, uh, sign me up, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll be rose from the dead, the third day rose, the, okay, no problem. I want to get saved. That's not what it's saying. Whoever trusts. And, you know, Jesus was once asked, what is the work of God? And he said, the work of God is to believe in the one whom God sent. Oh, that's easy. I believe in Jesus. No, the work of God is to trust the one whom God sent. 
believe me, trusting God is a lot of work and it takes a life. So this is not just easy. You know, okay, I'm in the club. It's not about being in a club. It's about being in a relationship of trust with God. All right. That said, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the 11. And we see in the Gospel of Luke, uh, in, 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 I think it would be in the Gospel of Luke, but we see in, especially in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we also see the 12. Jesus appeared to the 12 when there were only 11 of them. This, these numbers are very important. I get asked this all the time. Was How can Saul be an apostle? He wasn't one of the twelve. And I just make the point to you all the time, to the point of being tedious, that there were lots of apostles. There were only twelve of the twelve. All of the twelve were apostles. Not all apostles were members of the twelve. A person who had been designated as, as a missionary by God, or by our Lord Jesus, a person who had been designated as a missionary by our Lord Jesus was considered one of the one of the missionaries, one of the apostles. There were s- the count that we have is seventy, sometimes seventy-two. You can look it up. The seventy apostles—that's uh, what the Greeks call them. The Eastern Church calls them the seventy apostles or the seventy-two apostles. It, the numbering is occasionally variant. Paul was one of those. He was not one of the twelve. The reason that this is important is because when you read the scripture, it seems that Paul is always at loggerheads with the apostles. In other words, Paul was kind of the Protestant and Peter was the Catholic. That's nonsense. Peter and Paul were were working together. Uh, in fact, is at one point in one of the epistles, and a lot of scholars will say, well, Peter didn't really write it. I, forget. I think he did. But he kind of defends Paul and say, don't get carried away. People sometimes don't understand Paul. Peter's talking about Paul. They were in the same ballpark, playing in the same ballpark. So uh, this this uh, Peter never had a problem with the 12, or rather Paul never had a problem with the 12. But there are all sorts of people saying, well, he can't really be an apostle. I'm a true apostle because I actually saw Jesus. That's why Peter says, or Paul says at one point, doesn't matter who we knew in the flesh. It's who we know in the spirit that, that counts. Uh, so these these self-styled apostles who claimed that Jesus had delegated them, they probably hadn't been delegated by Jesus at all, but they may have had lunch with him once. Um, uh, the New Testament, in a sense, is written about authority. Paul is always telling Peter, step into the authority to which God has called you. You know, if anyone after Christ is the inventor of the Catholic Church, that is the universal church, it's Paul of Tarsus, because in himself he was he was universal. Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian, he embraced this wider culture and um, uh, brought the gospel to that wider culture. He was put in a unique position by his upbringing and education, to bring the gospel to a wider world. And in that sense, Paul is the founder of the church and its Catholicism. Of course, Jesus uh, is the founder of the Catholic Church, no doubt about it. But Paul is the person after Christ who is responsible for our culture and for the universal nature of the church. Uh, One of the most amazing men, and he was... He was, like David, a man after God's own heart, a tough guy, a real hard charger, 
but a person capable of repenting, a person capable of hearing God, a person capable of, of letting God change him. And that's what we celebrate today. The world changed when St. Paul fell down on the Damascus Road. By the way, there's no horse in the story. But when, when St. Paul fell down on the Damascus Road, the world changed. And so often we worry about the nature of the world and the situation we're in. Like I said, history can change on a dime. And when God decides to intervene in history, it changes. Too many examples not to believe that. All right, well, let's let's take a break, and we'll go to... Uh, when we come back, we'll go to letters. I got where's, where's that computer? Oh, there's that computer. And uh, you can call in at 888-914-9149. Oh, I think this is one of Paul's favorite songs, isn't it? This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Lord, I'm traveling on for Jesus night and day, night and day. Let me tell you I'm traveling on for Jesus. St. Paul's theme song, Traveling on the Jesus. I think I shared with you about um, uh, the, the, uh, where was that? The, uh, <laughs> the train of my thought has just gone off the rails. I think I shared with you uh, 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 the idea of the, 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 epist the epistle triangle. There's something called the gospel triangle on the north shore of of uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, better put, there is a triangle from Capernaum to Bethsaida, Bethsaida up the hill to Chorazin, and Chorazin back down to Capernaum. Jesus did most of what he did in that little tiny triangle that was, oh, maybe seven miles by four miles by two miles. There is a, an epistle, that's the gospel triangle, there's an epistle triangle. Paul did much of his work in the Aegean Sea, he went from Ephesus up to Thessalonica, down to Athens, to Eth Ephesus. <laughs> Corinth is just down the road a piece from Athens. And uh, Paul sat on the dock of the bay constantly, uh, um, waiting for a ship that would take him to the next place he wanted to go. That's how you did it. You didn't have cruise lines and travel directors. They did actually have cruises to the wonders of the world, but that's not how you travel. What you did was you went down and you sat in the harbor and found a ship that was going in the direction you wanted to go. You paid some money, got on the ship. You know, Paul wanted to get, for instance, to Jerusalem. So he would get on a ship that went to Crete. From Crete, he'd get on a ship that went to Cyprus. From Cyprus to Antioch. And then maybe a ship from Antioch down to, down to Caesarea, the port uh, on the coast of the Holy Land, um, or he would walk from Antioch. You could you could make a land journey. So 
that's how you did it. You just sort of went ship to ship to ship. So Paul spent, and I've never been on a sailing ship. Don't go that fast. Um, Paul spent a lot of his time looking at water and praying. Uh, I think that that's a dimension of Paul that we kind of forget. All right, let us now go to letters. Oops. Okay, letters, letters. Okay. All right. Uh, this is a letter from, from uh, someone named Paul. How appropriate. Uh, sometime back, I heard you quote a Bible verse that the role of men to protect widows and orphans. I believe you said that it was St. Paul. No. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, actually it's James one twenty seven. uh, the, the, the letter of St. James true religion is this, uh, to care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep one from being polluted by the world. I don't recall saying that, you know, all of us relevant radio folks, we all sound the same. All right. Moving along. Okay. Let's see here. Um, this is this is something uh, a fellow named Les from Pennsylvania asked if we'd heard of the Hillbilly Thomas. I yes, we have. So have we ever played the Hillbilly Thomas, dear voice in my head? Um, I don't remember. Uh, they're they're a, 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 a religious bunch. I think there are priests in it. I'm not sure. But I've heard the hillbilly talk. Yes, they're so Dominicans from the eastern they're province. They're Dominicans. I think. We won't hold it against them. I'm kidding. I'm a I'm a, a diocesan priest. Uh, that we are our own little kind of bunch. Okay. All right. Let's see here. Okay. Let's see. Uh, okay. This is one about the three days of darkness. That's from um, uh, Donald. Don. Don uh, if there are three days of darkness, I intend to get some rest. I've heard about the three days of darkness. I'll never forget uh, at the millennium, 2000. Uh, just before that, there were all sorts of uh, people, wanting, especially Spanish-speaking people, wanting to get candles blessed. I couldn't figure it out. I thought the millennium had come or something, and or there was a great revival going on. So it was on Spanish media that the three days of darkness would happen on January 1st, or around January 1st, 2000 or 2001, and it didn't happen. You know, I've heard, I've heard everybody talks about three days of darkness. Well, Padre Pio said it. I don't know if Padre Pio said it, and I don't know if there's going to be three days of darkness. It, 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 it's, you know, I do know that, that this is the day the Lord has made, so we should rejoice and be glad in it. You know, it's sufficient for, you know, tomorrow will take care of itself, Jesus said. Sufficient in the day is the trouble for the day are the troubles therein. Uh, you know, the the constant fascination we have, um, um, the constant fascination we have with, with the future. Um, there's a wonderful uh, contemporary Christian song. I know who holds the future is the one who holds my hand. We live in faith and in trust. And to want to know more than God is pleased to tell us, well, that's that's sinful. All right. Now, this is William from California. If a sinner prays for sinners, does it count? Yes. <laughs> Prayer is to love, to pray for someone is to love them. And love is never wasted, even if it's from someone who's not in a state of grace. The Lord may be bringing them um, into a state of grace. So, so don't worry about, you know, if you're a sinner, pray. Because good old St. Alphonsus says, he who prays is saved. And I think St. Alphonsus, Alphonsus knew what he was talking about. Okay, let's see here. Okay. 
Hold on, I gotta erase that one. Okay. All right. Let's see. Let's see. This is a question from Margaret. Why do we stand for the gospel at Mass? And why don't we say Amen at the end of the Our Father when it's recited during Mass? Well, I'm going to take a stab at both of them. Once upon a time, I don't know if you've ever been into an Eastern church, you know, a Byzantine church or an Eastern Orthodox church. In very traditional ones, there are no pews. People just stand. And in the early church, people tended to stand. Well, shouldn't we be standing then? Not necessarily, because the custom in the West developed of kneeling. Because for us in the West, kneeling is a sign of submission. You can't defend yourself as easily when you're kneeling. So it's a sign of submission. Within our Western Germanic medieval culture, kneeling is about submission. So we kneel. Uh, that that uh, we stand at the gospel because it was the ancient custom. That's why it's a it's it wasn't taken over by by the custom of kneeling. Well, then we should all be standing because it's what the early Christians did. The early Christians, there was a group of early Christians that believe around oh I want to say 180 A.D. that believed that the New Jerusalem had descended and was disguised as a field just outside of the town of Papuza, Turkey. In other words. Going, the early church had its problems, and we've learned a few things in these 2,000 years. And to simply say, well, we need to do it like the early Christians did it. Some of the early Christians were nuts, and there were real problems in the early church. That's why we have a Bible, because there were problems, and Paul and Peter and James were trying to solve them. All right, that is a, a ridiculous uh, position to say, well, because it was in the early church, it was good. Some was good. Some was bad. In the later church, some is good, some's not so good. All right. That's what I think anyway. All right, let me erase that and go over here. What let me look at the time. Oh, I think I can do another letter or two. Oh, why don't we say the Amen at the end of the Our Father? Because we're not done with the prayer. It it it, it just flows into uh uh the um <clears throat> well that doesn't flow it ends it for thine is the kingdom at least that's the way we do it in the, in the present mass but it flows into the prayer deliver us lord from every evil graciously grant peace in our day that it flows right into that prayer so so it's you say amen when you're done with the prayer we aren't quite done with the our father we keep going and that's why we don't have an amen at the end of the our father in mass all right let's see here i click the erase button for that okay all right uh this is from john um my question is who are all the people paul's letters are written to i mean how did he meet or find them and write to them well in general it seems that paul went where there were synagogues and the disciples went where there were synagogues i thought paul was the apostle to the gentiles yeah he was but didn't mean he wasn't going to talk to jews and there were lots of gentiles who attended meet gentile meaning non-jew who attended uh synagogue the judaism uh the, the religion of the jews were about 10 percent of the empire at the time of christ and the time of saint paul and it was a reasonable religion they didn't worship these 
Randy Greco-Roman gods who were sometimes appeared in the forms of swans so they could have their way with women. I mean, the religion was nuts. And so a lot of people thought this Judaism is one God, decent moral code. They have odd customs like not eating pork. But other than that, so people would attend synagogue who were not Jews. They were called God-fearers. Sometimes they would take the plunge and become Jewish, but most didn't. And it was those people to whom Christianity was most appealing because what Paul was saying is you can be a fully-fledged member of Israel and not be circumcised and still eat pork. It was, in a sense, the first Reformed Judaism. Um, I don't know if that's many people think of it that way, but in a sense, I think that's true. So Paul went to synagogues, and there were places where there was a good Jewish population, a large synagogue, and frequently he would be invited to places. He, he would know people there. That's how he got to know people. Then he would write letters back to the congregation of believers in those Jewish communities, be they Gentile believers or Jewish believers. Now, I think we don't realize how very small Christianity was for its first 10, 20 years. Um, it was in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands or the millions. Um, the, the, uh, you might have a community of a few thousand Jews in a place like Corinth. And of those few thousand Jews, a minuscule group would have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, now that changed over history, over the centuries. And by the end of the 200 years after Christ, according to Dr. Rodney Stark, it seemed that most people who we would consider Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah and had begun to blend into the, the, the Greek speaking population. But at very first, when St. Paul was writing, uh, a Christian community of a couple hundred people would have been fairly large. So they knew each other. But that also had the effect, if you consider that, that maybe 600 people had seen Jesus risen from the dead. One out of every 20 people in the early church had seen Jesus risen from the dead. It was a very living witness. Um, so I think that that's uh, to be considered, the smallness of the early church for at least the first 20 or 30 years of of its existence until the persecutions under Nero, uh, that, that it was a small group of people in, in different places. So Paul went where there were Jews and um, where he knew people. All right, that's my theory on it. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a word of the day. And uh, uh, you can call in at 888-914-9149. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. What a fellowship, what a joy to bind leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine leaning on the everlasting arms. That is the Hillbilly Thomas playing one of my favorite songs, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Great song. Something we all need to do. Well, let's go to the word of the day. 
The word of the day is from Acts, the 22nd chapter. Uh, is it the, no, it's not. It's from, let me click the button. It's, there are three accounts of St. Paul's conversion. This is from Acts, the 26th chapter, uh, that, that Paul is recounting the story once again. Uh, we find it mentioned three times in the Acts of the Apostles. And everybody, he says, just fell to the ground, um, when this great light appeared and, and, uh, he heard a voice that said to him, uh, uh, in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then it is hard for you to kick against the, the goads. What is that? Um, a goad, uh, the word in Greek is kentra. It, if you had an ox that was difficult or an animal that was difficult and would kick back at the, at the, uh, at the cart or, or plow that they were pulling, you would put a little bar that had little sharp protrusions coming out of it, a wooden bar into which you would put something that wouldn't injure the animal but would hurt if he kicked it. That was a goad. It literally means a sting, as in that it's a sting of a stinging animal like a scorpion or a bee. That's the word, a kentron. And this is fascinating to me because <clears throat> Paul, what, what, Jesus was saying to him was the the angry you get about the angry you get about Christianity the more you're fascinated by it. the angry you get about me the messiah the more you're fascinated about it. I remember hearing a story from a woman in India who who had been brought to Christ by a, a teacher who was just venomously anti-christian and he had spent everything he had and spent all of his extra energy fighting the spread of Christianity in this particular part of India. And one night he went back to his his home and went into his, his room and closed the door and there was Jesus. Uh, and, and he converted to the faith. But you see, sometimes we get very angry about something because it's the Lord drawing us to it. And we're angry not about the thing itself, but that 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 this is something I want to do, and God's pulling me into it. Paul was pulled into this, and he kicked and he kicked, and the more he persecuted Christians, the more he was drawn into it. Interesting. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but hard for you to kick against the goad, an animal goad, as in when someone says he was just goading me on. That's where that comes from. All right, that said, let us go to phone calls. Hello, Ghostbusters. We do have quite a number of lines open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Let's go to Elijah from Lexington, Kentucky. Elijah, what can I do for you? Well, first of all, peace upon you, Father. You're our Thank favorite you. Father. We turn everything oh, over when you come to the radio. I'm serious. Uh-oh. Well, take it yeah. with a grain of salt, remember. But what can I do for you, Elijah? I had visited where Paul walked in Damascus. The geography and the structure still as is. The government of Syria made sure nobody would change that. It was really a holy place. People visit from all over the world to pray and walk uh, that way, if you wish. And I also visited Paul... uh, 
room on the top of the mountain in Antakya, Turkey, still as is also, oh my. and being considered uh, by the Turkish government a holy site. So I thought I would share with you that piece of information. Well, thank you. Yes, I was on the road to, to Damascus, but in the part controlled by the Israelis. Uh, I, I've never been to Damascus. But that's fascinating. It's, it's uh, uh, Yes, I, I'm just pulling it up here. And the house of Ananias is still there in in yes, uh, in, in in Damascus. That would be something worth seeing. And that uh, is interesting that, that even the non-Christian governments of those places have such respect that they, they still preserve them. Well, thank you for calling in, Elijah, on that. That's, that's a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing to know. And God willing, peace will break out and we can visit all these places. God bless you, and I'm honored that you listened, Elijah. Let's go to Mercedes. Mercedes, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Hi, Father. The, uh, regarding the Sunday readings, the first reading mm -hmm. and the gospel always seem to be similar in content. The second yes. reading seems to stand alone. What yes. then is the purpose of having a second reading? Well, as I understand it, recalling the dim mists of my youth, the long gone days, that, that after the Second Vatican Council, a second reading was put in simply to get us more of the scripture, the first and second readings. In the, in the, in the old mass, we had two readings, uh, uh, the epistle and the gospel. Uh, but much more scripture was added after the council, which is something I, I like. Um, but the second reading was not as well tuned to the first reading and the gospel reading. But you know, it's kind of funny. I often find it is if you look more deeply. But that was the reason for it, just to get more scripture in. Does that help, Mercedes? Yes, Father, thank you. Well, there you go. That's as I remember it. Let's go to Rita from Harwood Heights, Illinois. Can I be of some service? Hi, Father Simon. I just love your program. And well, I wanted to tell you. you that the way you say the rosary, it keeps me on track as to what you know, we're supposed to be praying for. And I like well, thank that. You. But my question has to do with Jesus being human. And I think Mary mm -hmm. and Joseph had their hands full. Um, mm -hmm. Did he... Did he go through the terrible twos? You know, Jesus was was is a divine person with a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. However, it is the nature of Adam before the fall. And you'll even find kids who don't go through the terrible twos. Um, I have a feeling he, he didn't go through them the way that we would. You know, the, the first word everybody tries to, to get, kids to say mommy can you say mommy can you say daddy you know and they they kind of imitate it but the first word a kid says with a real feeling is no do you want to go out no do you want to stay in no they they're distinguishing themselves as a unique being in contrast to their mom and dad but i don't know that jesus would have gone through that because he was his human nature was the nature before the fall so uh, you know i i i I, I'm quite sure that raising Jesus was difficult, but for different reasons. For instance, they had to flee from the government. That would have been part of the sorrow. of. But I don't think Jesus was ever the cause of that sorrow. Does that make sense to you, Rita? Yes, it does. But the other part, uh, I was wondering, you know, after the finding in the temple, 
the way he mm-hmm. responded to Mary and Joseph seemed like he was sassing them. And well, well, I, I mean, don't think he, was I don't think child, he was sassing them. Would have grounded him. <laughs> well, they kind of did. He went and was subject to them. No, that 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 he was he was. You know, I think that that. <clears throat> Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I believe in the 8th chapter, I always do what is pleasing to him, to the Father. And I think Jesus reminded them, don't forget that I must do what's pleasing to the Father. He didn't do it to sass them, but to to honor his heavenly Father, which is a bit different. So uh, I think that, that they would have understood that, 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 that he didn't, wasn't sassing them, he was just telling them a fact. And don't forget that we don't I'm, hear from I'm, him anymore until after the until the um yeah, the, he went uh, and was subject feast, to them. Yes, he went and was subject to them. That's what the scripture says that he went and was subject to them. In other words, he didn't sass them; he obeyed them perfectly. So yeah, we don't hear anything of him until uh, he begins his public ministry. So, in a sense, that finding in the temple was a reminder that. Uh, to them of who he was. You know, I mean, it had been, been 12 years, you know, give or take, and I wonder if they had begun to forget. Maybe we just imagined all of that. I, I, I don't think they did, but, you know, you, you don't know. But he was reminding them, and I think letting us know that he always knew who his who his real father was. So I hope that helps, Rita, and thanks for listening. God bless. Let's go to Jim now from Somerdale, New Jersey. What can I do for you, Jim? Hi, Father. Thanks for taking my call, and um, I'm going to put you to that test to see if you know you really, Father, know it all here. Oh dear. Um, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, in a reading uh, in church, they talked about the Jesus being the only begotten Son of God. Now, looking mm-hmm. up the word "begotten," it means like fathered by or you know, generated mm-hmm. by procreation, but that seems to be not even on the same plane that we're taught through the Catholic Church. So could you explain yes. that? Yes. Sure. Uh, let me pull up the Greek word. I mean, it's, it's ginomai. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I think it's ginomai. The only begotten. Okay, I've got it. Click. All right. Uh, God so loved the world in John 3.16 that he gave his one and only son. Well, that's how one translation. Let's look at this. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his monogene, his only begotten. That's uh, 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 from the verb. Let's see here. Let's pull up the verb here. It's from the verb. Uh, um, good grief. This is going to take a, a little more clicking from the verb ginomai, which is an interesting verb. It means to come into being, to happen, to become. Uh, it means It can mean to be born that that the idea is that it's a much more to beget in english means only one thing it means to generate through a process of intimacy but it doesn't mean that in greek it means uh to to become uh or 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 to um uh to enter into a condition so jesus was generated we get the word generate from that or generation uh, we get that from Greek through Latin. So the father generates the son is the idea. So to beget that, that, that has a very specific meaning in English, but we don't have a word in English that embodies that word in Greek. Does that help at all? 
Um, a little bit, because it still seems that whole the Trinity itself is too much of a, a mystery to, I guess, understand with a have a lot of um, reading and understanding or knowing it in Greek. Um, well, I I like, I, I maintain secondary God to the Father. Uh, no, he's not a secondary God at all. I maintain that 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 the Trinity is a lot less complicated than you think. If you believe that God is love, who is God going to love? If if God is love, how can there be love if there's only one being? Well, He loves us. That would mean we were constituents of the existence of God, and we're not. We're not God. But within the being of God, there is such perfect oneness that there's only one God. There's such perfect love that there is a diversity of persons. That that for us this is impossible, but for God it's not impossible. Nothing's impossible. That that there are persons in God, while He's still one in His in His being. So so these these beings of love, these or not this being of love. With these three voices, these three persons, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit being, in a certain sense, their love itself. That, that's what we mean by the Trinity. So, you know, that this is an eternal and, and, and um, unchanging reality that this second person of the Trinity is, is generated from the very nature of God which is love. So I suppose it's complicated, but it makes perfect sense if you believe that God is love. So I hope that helps well, a little, Jim. And yes, I'm, yes. well, yes, thank you I hope, I hope that it's helpful. Let's, let's go now to, to, uh, Catalina, uh, from Florida. Catalina, are you with us? What can I do for you? Um, yes, father. Hello. I, um, I'm new to your show. I've only listening for a well, couple welcome. of times. I've been a Catholic for generations, but just now I'm trying to really understand what it is to be a Catholic. And you said huh. something that really caught my attention. You said uh, something that I see a lot, you know, in people's walls. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made and yes. rejoice in it. That makes perfect sense. And then you said, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what you said, but you said something like, um, wanting to know more than what God has revealed is a sin. Is that something? In a certain sense, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I should qualify it. I, I sometimes paint, uh, paint in bright colors, but to right. want to know more than God is pleased to tell us, say about the future, like I got to know this, so I'm going to a fortune teller. That would be very sinful. You know, that, that our job is to trust God. And very often, Christians treat prophetic utterances, which are real. There are real prophets in the world. Uh, they treat these prophetic sayings as if they were going to some sort of spiritist or fortune teller. Well, there's going to be these three days, and we got to have the candles and all that. Relax. Do your best. Trust God. So in that sense, to, to be more interested in in the future than is healthy, that that is a sin. So speaking of wanting to know the future, Drew is quite happy living for today. Well, he's part Italian.